Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host as always. And uh, today we'll be speaking with um, Stephen Kuchuk about a book he edited um, entitled Clinical Implications of the Psychoanalyst's Life Experience, When the Personal Becomes Professional. Um, Stephen Kuchuk is a LCSW as well as a psychoanalyst and supervisor in private practice here in New York City. Um, he's also editor-in-chief of Psychoanalytic Perspectives and the associate editor of the Relational Perspectives book series from Rutledge. Um, he also serves on the board of directors uh, as supervisor and faculty at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies, uh, where he is also the co-director of curriculum for the adult psychoanalytic training program faculty member at Stephen Mitchell Center for Relational Studies and several other institutes in New York City. And he's also supervisor at ICP in uh, Los Angeles. His professional writing appears in Psychoanalytic Dialogues, Contemporary Psychoanalysis, Studies and Gender in Psychoanalysis, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, and the Psychoanalytic Review, among other places. And focuses mostly, um, his writing focuses mostly on the analyst's subjectivity. Um, most recently, um, he has published this book, um, and uh, he also has a chapter um, within it. And he's currently co-editing, this sounds pretty good, a new volume with Adrian Harris, The Legacy of Chandra Ferenzi, From Ghost to Ancestor. So that um, should be an exciting book, too. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get to um, talk to them about that when it's out. Uh, in press. Um, so without further ado, um, I want to move us to uh, the interview. I think it speaks uh, for itself and needs no preamble from me. And just a quick heads up to the listeners um, that uh, in about a month we are um, going to begin to um, train, uh, I guess that's the word, um, eight new hosts um, who will be joining uh, New Books and Psychoanalysis. And with our aim uh, to do as many interviews of psychoanalytic authors or authors of books on psychoanalysis as is humanly possible. Um, and uh, with a goal of perhaps 100 books a year um, in, uh, in all in good time. So um, stay tuned. I think that that's incredibly exciting. Uh, we appreciate your support. Um, please tell your colleagues about our program and because um, we're about to go, you know, I don't know if it's viral, but anyway, <laughs> we're about to um, to um, make a deeper, um, be able to provide a deeper service and survey of uh, of the field um, for everybody who's interested in it. 
So uh, without saying any more, let's move to the interview. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, today we'll be speaking uh, with Stephen Kuchuk, who is the editor of a recent publication um, entitled Clinical Implications of the Psychoanalyst Life Experience When the Personal Becomes Professional, uh, published um, by Rutledge, and I believe it's, it's uh, Stephen, 2013? Actually... Yeah, it was released in 2013, although the copyright's 2014. So. 2014, right, right, right. It has the it sort of straddled um, those years. So, so welcome uh, to the program, and uh, we're pleased to have you here and uh, to discuss with you um, your book. I I will say that it's a little complicated for me as an interviewer um, to discuss a book of essays that have been written by so many different people. I mean the. Sure. It's uh, how many essays do we have? We have eight. Yes. Yeah, so there's 18 essays, um, and uh, they cover a vast amount um, of material. But the first thing I ask every um, author, of which you're also an author of an essay in the book and editor, is um, can you talk to us about um, uh, what made you decide to to really put the effort um, to pull this book uh, together? Sure, and, and first of all, thank you for having me. Let me let me start with that. I'm I'm very happy to talk with you about this. In many ways, the book is a corrective for me to a very classical ego psychology based uh, psychoanalytic training many years ago, in which we were really cautioned to keep as much of our personalities, as much of our subjective selves, out of the room. I would say as possible, but my belief is the lesson really was it could be possible in an absolute sense. We were there as neutral instruments to analyze. And so for years, I didn't question this. I struggled with it. I didn't question it. And as the field began to shift a little bit in the 80s and 90s, some of that filtered to many of us. And then there was uh, an event, we, we might talk about it more specifically later if, if, if you'd like to, but then, but then 9-11 happened and suddenly patients and analysts were sharing real-time trauma and difficulties and it was no longer possible to hide subjectivity and some things began to shift for me. Uh, so I wanted to come to this book as an opportunity to really open up the conversation about the effects of who we are, who, who is the analyst on the treatment. I think um, what, what's very clear in um, your introduction um, is, because uh, you elaborate even further on this, is I, it made me, uh, I'm, I'm very curious about what your thoughts are on the impact of um, neutrality uh, on the analyst. Mm, that's, a great, that's a great question. Uh, I think it takes a terrible toll on the analyst. First of all, I certainly wonder, as others have written about and wondered, if there is even such a thing as neutrality, I, I suspect it's probably largely an illusion <laughs> that we're working with. Uh, the minute a patient comes into our office and sees how we've decorated it or not, how we're dressed, I won't say dressed or not, <laughs> but how we, <laughs> how we present ourselves, um, neutrality is missing. And there is so much inadvertent uh, self-disclosure that happens. So, but I, would, I will say that the effort to be neutral, the effort to keep our faces blank, as I was taught by, I would say, all of my instructors, supervisors, and my uh, training analyst early in my training. 
I did a second training and have had other experiences. But all of the lessons pointed to hiding who we are, and that takes a terrible toll. I think it probably leads to somatic kinds of uh, issues. It leads to a great deal of shame, uh, the sense that we have to hide who we are, especially if we're feeling ourselves to be other already in terms of sexual orientation or, or uh, gender or other kinds of cultural and background issues, the sense that we have to, to fade away um, and, and not be present other than as an instrument for the patient. Uh, uh, I could probably talk with you about the, for the whole session about that. Well, it's, it, I mean, it, it is, it's an amazing, uh, you know, conundrum because the, you know, as you know, within, within the field, the pendulum swings this way and that, I mean, somebody said to me the other day, Oh, uh, the pendulum has swung so far that um, there's a, what was the joke he said? This is somebody who's trained uh, interpersonally. He said, now there's only one person in the room and it's the analyst, right? <laughs> and now, and then, you know, and so then you see, of course, like at the, at the White Institute recently, I think uh, Suzanne Little, probably six months ago or so, gave a, a talk that I didn't get to, but um, I heard about, about, you know, the attempt to um, return to kind of a Belossian or a, uh, you know, a, a kind of more receptive, quiet place um, of, you know, receiving the patient's communication. I mean, we're, we're always struggling with this. Absolutely. I think that dialectical tension is very important. I would not want us to lose yeah. that quieter place. I think in many ways the the great interest in Bionian field theory might be in part a reaction to that, where where the it's about the analyst's internal world as a receptor and, and conduit to, for the patient's ability to dream and the patient's intrapsychic material, but not because there's value to the analyst's individual subjectivity. That is maybe partly appealing to us because it's a corrector for swinging too much in the other direction. But I, I'm, not in, I'm not in disagreement with that concern. I think we run the risk of falling into either extreme if we don't keep that tension. Right. I mean, there is something... Um to, to, to be said about there are deprivations involved in this work, um, you know, with, without a doubt. And as I read through these essays, I, um, they, you know, they were kind of like candy, you know what I mean? They were like, you know, they were like, they were good and delicious and interesting and autobiographical. And, and I thought, you know, I, I think I sent you an email early on. I was curious. I was like, you know, the drive to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, is something that, um, you know, we, it, because, because our work is, you know, is, is we're behind the couch often, many of us, um, patients don't notice, uh, you know, how many analysts like are in their eighth month of pregnancy and, you know, you have patients who don't even notice you're pregnant. I mean, it's, you know, it can be very, um, it's very hard, uh, on our narcissism, um, that's very funny. I actually literally, to be concrete in my answer, saw a colleague yesterday who's eight and a half months pregnant, and I said, have you started telling patients yet? And she actually did, did say there are still some, you know, as, as recently as a month ago, some people hadn't brought it up. Patients will see what they feel ready to see, of course. And in terms of the deprivation, I think you're quite right. I suspect that the kind of autobiographical writing that we in this book have done and that a lot of us do in the field is a form of therapy for us mm-hmm. and becomes a way of counterbalancing the, de- the, the tolls of the deprivation. What does it do to the psyche to, to not be seen? And then to your earlier question, to feel as if on top of not being seen, we actually actively have to hide. Right, right. It's very, um, 
yeah, and you mentioned the somatic impact, um, for instance, of, uh, you know, on sort of absorbing um, so much from the patient and attempting to, uh, to, to negate um, to negate our, our reactions. Um, I wonder, one, one thought I have is uh, sometimes, you know, I listen to people talk, who've got done their institute training, blah, 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 and they're done and they've graduated and maybe they, you know, have a peer supervision group or maybe they just don't even have supervision anymore. I mean, you know, it, which, which always shocks me, like that, that in part the American analytic culture um, is so... Um, some aspect of it is, is um, really juvenile. Like we've graduated and we're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's right, exactly. Well, you know, it's juvenile in that the actual training is a regressive process, exactly. and it's juvenile in that we're graduated and then all finished. That's right. right. Right, and so then I think about like you know people I know who I'm like, you're not in supervision. Like you have how many hours? You have forty patient hours a week. Like where does this? It just strikes me like there's some grandiosity. I was like, you know, we need to be encouraged to continue to go and and be helped to survive and uh, you know our work and I was I was just as I read this I'm you know I'm not saying people who wrote in this book aren't aren't in supervision and hence they're doing this but I have the feeling that something is um, something's afoot uh, with the, so many people not not continuing with supervision and exposing themselves, meaning not exposing themselves, <laughs> being exposed to all kinds of uh, stimulation from patients without any, without any outlet. Um, I don't know if that's something that that's, you, know, you, you see and, uh, or, or have a sense of. I, I do. I don't know that I've quite formulated it, it, it for myself in the way that you just have. It's, it, um, I, I wonder if it just feels, I wonder if we shut down. I wonder if it gets a point we've had so much exposure and sometimes so much feeling overexposed during training and supervision in our own analyses that, that, that we just sort of cut off a part of ourselves right. and, and coast. Not that it's a conscious decision even much of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, think, I think you're onto something with that. Yeah. Maybe writing becomes a way to feel as if we're, if not in supervision, then at least in dialogue right. with, with our readers, and yet we're in control, right? We're choosing what we write and what we show. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't ask a question of anyone, right, because they've written it. I mean, I, I think that Ringstrom, as I recall, kind of <laughs> talked about at the end of his piece, um, uh, something along the lines of, like, you know, that it was, it was so um, almost therapeutic, actually, for him to sit down and think about how he understands uh, his his sort of analytic uh, stance, subjectivity way um, to have to have been formed um, from his, uh, you know, from from his family. It really focuses on his family life. Um, he does. Yeah. yeah. So there's there is a there is a desire and a need for that. But it seems okay. So here's the other thing that's interesting in in the book. Um, and the book ends with a beautiful petite essay by um, the recently uh, deceased Martin Bergman. Um, and and it's the last chapter, Psychoanalysis in Old Age. So we kind of cut, we kind of get to the end. He's 100. He's he's writing this. And it, but what's, what's interesting is the book is almost all right, relational and interpersonal uh, people, except for Bergman. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, was did you attempt to get uh, people who are trained, you know, more, 
classically to, to participate aside from Bergman? And was, was that difficult? Was there interest, no interest? Did you just say, forget it? <laughs> what a fun question. I, yes, I tried to get a few classical people to participate. And I, you know, it's funny, Tracy, I almost felt apologetic asking them, um, would you be willing to write about yourself and how that comes in, into the work, knowing that some of their theoretical footing is in fact based on the notion that that's not supposed to be happening. But not to worry, they, they declined, even if nicely. Um, Martin Bergman was very open and lovely about it. Uh, he only went so far right. in, in bringing his own uh, subjectivity and reflections into it. And I don't know how much of that is a function of how he thinks and works and how much is a function of the fact that he was 100 and was going to work on this essay only up to a certain uh, right, right. point, given given other commitments. He's also was also even at that age already overly committed oh, yeah. um, with so many projects. Having said that, he was an absolute delight and fun and lovely to work with, and I was thrilled to have somebody with a classical orientation in here. Mm-hmm. Although many of these relational authors come from a classical uh, training initially, at least right. as you know. Yeah. Well, there is also this uh, sense in the book. Um, that it's a people who had the feeling um, it's sort of like a com- it really is like a coming out book. It really like remember uh, voices from uh, gay liberation like books like you know people just coming out of the closet in a way. There there is a feeling. Um, I think Susie Orbach who has an essay it's something um, coming out. Uh, oh, I wanted the stuff of secrets to be in the light. <laughs> but there was, there was a sense of like this is like nineteen there's a nineteen seventy two like gay liberation feeling and to the pursuit of book in a certain sense does that resonate at all this it does it 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 does it's it, even in the title right of her essay it's yeah. it's a coming out title even and it's a coming out essay I think Ken Frank's chapter out is from a hiding <laughs> yeah it's a coming out of hiding isn't yeah. it yeah, yeah out yeah. from hiding out from hiding so he's out outing himself here as. Right analyst who has been in hiding. I think we all feel like we're coming, we're coming out and it was a very tricky part of the back and forth editing and writing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kept trying to push further out of the closet and, and many people tried to keep at least part of a foot in there, uh, including me in my own chapter. It's, it's a struggle to be out there and, and, and to be out in front of colleagues in a profession that tells us not to show too much. Well, you know, it's, that is really what's striking about um, about the book as well. Because I was the other night, um, I was at a NPAP and giving a, a sort of a talk on you know the attacks on psychoanalysis and what to, how to respond to them. It's called "Seducing Unbelievers." Actually, that's our title. I'm doing this with Will Braun, and um, so we're at NPAP and we said we asked the question, "Well, what do you imagine it looks like when analysts um, stand up on behalf of psychoanalysis?" And people said things along these lines. Uh, that, uh, well, they would be scared of being seen as narcissistic. They would be scared of being seen as pathological, but the but or as um, you know, acting out. And then one woman said something. Um, she said, "Well, I would be scared of the impact that um, my being public, for instance, writing to the New York Times, or, you know, who knows what would be the impact of." that on my patients on the transference so <laughs> excuse me so as, I, as I read this book you know I was thinking none of us can hide anymore yeah. I mean our patients if they want to find us they find us right 
Absolutely. Having said that, for myself and for many of the authors in the book, we were more okay sharing some of what we shared to each other and to our readership than we might be sharing some of this material with patients, right. which of course is quite a paradox or, or illusion or delusion sure. because we are sharing it with our patients if they want to find it. Galit Atlas, who has a beautiful chapter in the book, um, mentioned at a book discussion that we were at uh, recently that it wasn't until the book was published and somebody came up to her and spoke about Galit's essay with her, that Galit suddenly realized people were reading this. <laughs> the act of writing is so private, uh-huh. uh, as is the act of doing psychoanalysis, right. uh, that we forget it. We're inviting people in once we put these ideas out there. And it's a very interesting uh, experience you had at NPAP. We analysts are so frightened of being seen. Actually, Lou Aaron uh, suggests, and I mentioned this in my introduction oh, yeah. to this book, uh, why else would we choose such a profession if we weren't conflicted about being seen? Right. A profession in which we sit hidden, sometimes literally, uh, focusing on the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's um, an important aspect of sort of, you know, what, what draws us to the work um, is uh, to get to know, get to see others, you know, and and is it okay for us to step out, and what happens uh, when we do? And then I had this uh, question came to my mind, um, which is, you know, like every school of psychoanalysis, you could say, you could sort of look and, uh, you know, I mean, this is really kind of reductionist and ridiculous, but on the other hand, it's hard not to say, like, oh, okay, certain schools of thought attract certain kinds of people, you yeah. know, to to. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, my training is in, in modern psychoanalysis. So, you know, it's a, you know, a, a very particular way of working, a really, you know, particular way of understanding the importance of aggression, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a very lively, very lively group, right? <laughs> and lots of drive, lots of energy. Um, and so I think about who's drawn to work as a modern. And then I was thinking, okay, so who's drawn I mean, because this, this is particular, I think, this book, to relational and to some degree interpersonal um, mm-hmm. experience. Would you care to comment? I mean, on, like, the, I don't know, this is, is it too reductive where I'm headed, but I was just thinking, who are, who are these, who are people who are drawn to the interpersonal and relational tradition? Because this book would not come out of any other school of thought, I don't think, at this moment in psychoanalytic history. I'm sure you're right. What a huge question. My initial thought when you said, would you care to comment on that, was absolutely not. But having started with that, let me elaborate from absolutely not. Um, Absolutely, yes. The problem in in talking about it, you mentioned reductionistic, the relational field and the interpersonal field is so variable. Jessica Benjamin's work is so not... um, uh, Jody Davies' work, which is not Tony Bass's, you know, if I'm thinking about some of the relational writers or Lou Aaron's or Adrian Harris's, everybody has their own version right. of relational psychoanalysis. Right. I think if we lump together relational and, and interpersonal, which is sometimes done, we're talking about analytic thinkers and writers and practitioners who want to make space for the analyst's subjectivity in the room, not necessarily to bring it in deliberately. And some of us, by the way, bring it in much more deliberately, and others of us um, still hold on to our more classical beginnings and uh, refrain from more active, conscious 
disclosures and use of self. Yeah, and also the right? patient is in the room. I mean, I... I True. Yeah. True. But I think probably what all of these interpersonal and relational writers would, would agree on, and as would some contemporary Freudians and modern uh, analysts and, and self-psychologists, I suppose, although in self-psychology there's another debate, yeah. but what we would all agree on is that we're there. As much as we might want to bracket our subjectivity, it's an impossible task to some extent, the relationalists and the personalists would agree on. It's there. So assuming it's there in this room, whether we've brought it in or it's just crept in despite our best efforts, what now? And that's why I think it takes that kind of mentality, such a generalization, isn't it? But perhaps that's why it takes that kind of theoretical orientation and mentality to produce a book like this. Mm-hmm. And yet there's Martin Bergman in the book as well, as you yeah. pointed out. Yeah, he he certainly um, he he had a very personal. I've seen him at many conferences, as probably you have, and there was something always very very personal about him. Like he he wasn't he wasn't really hiding. Mm. I never had that feeling that he was actually hiding who who he was. He seemed very comfortable always um, in his skin. Um, you know, um, another Steve, are you there? I just had a funny okay. voice. Did you hear that? I, I hear some squeaking noise, but yeah, I have yeah, it, it, You never know. It, it's just Skype, you know, it gets kind of funny. Uh, modern technology. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I also was thinking about um, this book as a book that's um, on the, in part, perhaps the analyst's exploration of um, their own subjective uh, counter-transference uh, pitfalls or um or vulnerabilities in a way, because I was like, as I read it, I was like, well, this is perhaps how the analyst understands how she got to, or how he got to have a, a certain stance or approach um, in the room. And of course, each approach, you know, um, doesn't allow for perhaps another approach. And I, does this book, does that resonate with you? That this book is also a way to think about analysts exploring via writing their own subjective. Um, uh, kind of transference? It, it does. It does. And and I think you're also alluding to uh, theoretical predilections and, yeah. and, 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 and preferences and choices and such. Uh, some chapters, I think, speak to that more directly than others. Joyce Slockauer yeah. talks about the fact that she was raised by two analyst parents, both of whom were classical Freudian analysts, as one would have to be in that day. Right. Um, and she talks about her own exploration and then distancing <clears throat> and setting herself in opposition to that in some ways. I'm also thinking about Erwin Hirsch's chapter in, uh, oh, yeah. in he defines himself as oppositional and negative. <laughs> I've interviewed him. Uh, uh, okay. and, <laughs> he embraces his oppositionality very, very delightfully, yes. Nice way of putting it, exactly, he does. And uh, that becomes defining for him and, and draws him to interpersonal theory, where it's so much about the here and now, and, and confronting uh, or tolerating being confronted in the room. Right. So, yeah, I think we're all in this book and in the field, many of us struggling with how to figure out our counter-transference. And then, of course, relational thinkers would say we can't separate that out from the transference, that they're not separate phenomena mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well. Right. Um, I, I mean, I would, as, as someone trained as a modern analyst, I would, I would also agree with that. Um, although, you know, it's funny, some... Uh, well, certainly more classically trained people will say, well, you need to go back to your analysis if you're having that problem in the, <laughs> in the, um, in the treatment or dealing with this patient. And I'm, and I'm often thinking as a modern analyst, like, 
well, actually, this is an induced feeling from the patient, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, having to, to sort through, and it's a, it's a message from the patient, um, and I think that, you know, it's uh, anyway, it's, I, I, I feel bad, you know, I, I feel bad for uh, my analyst friends who are thinking always that they have to go back to the subjective countertransference and wonder what it is that's getting in their way, rather than what's being communicated by the patient and how is this um, a reflection of how the patient actually feels. But that's you're, you're bringing up something very interesting, though. So if we continue with that way of thinking, it's almost as if going back to one's own analysis could condole uh, our, our counter-transference abilities. Um, if, if, the, if the idea is that we're not supposed to be so reactive or so, so, so activated in some way, um, by something that's happening in the treatment, we have to go back to our analysis. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, and I would certainly embrace this, is that we run the risk of losing some data. I mean, are we supposed to be so well analyzed in the absolute sense that there is never um, any enactment, never any impasse, never any counter subjective counter-transference problems, as you, as you say, that right. will interfere with the treatment? Right. Is, is that what we're striving for? And if so, no wonder some people never leave their analysis. Right, right. And, uh, <laughs> well, it's really, I mean, it's, it's very, take the toll. Again, though, the subjective kind of transference idea, you know, one, go back to your analysis, work this out so you can work with this patient, seems to me so um, depleting of the analyst. And my, my way of thinking is always like, well, you know, if I'm feeling like a complete idiot in this treatment, and... I have the feeling also that the patient feels like a complete idiot in the treatment. And we're just two complete idiots in the treatment rather than there's something wrong with me that I can't understand this case. But perhaps in the case, it's important for me to feel like a complete idiot right now. And uh, that certainly will secure, um, you know, that, so the patient will have have me as, as a, you know, that's an, what I would call a narcissistic transference. We're, we're together and we're similar and I'm feeling what the patient's feeling. Um, Absolutely. And by the way, there's a title for a paper that you can write if you want two complete idiots in the room, because how often do we feel some version of that? <laughs> every day. <laughs> That's every all. Single, every single day, depending on, <laughs> depending on, the, on the patient and what the patient does not, what the patient wants to, you know, keep, keep out, of, out of awareness and keep out of, out of the room and, um, you know, or, or, or attack themselves and, and I begin to attack myself too. Like, what's my problem? This treatment's going nowhere. I, what's wrong with me? Why can't I help you? You know? Right, right, exactly. Things are too smooth. What's, what's missing here? Look, I always think about it in, in terms of British object relations theory and flying objects and how many objects are in the space, our own internal objects, the patients, or, or ghosts, as Adrian and Harrison and, and Lowell much earlier and write about the ghosts in the room. Yeah, the ghosts. Yeah. So many. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a, a little bit of a different question. This is like a, a, a something of great uh, interest to me, and I don't know if this is something that uh, you've thought about, but I'm really interested in our use of the word experience. Um, theoretically, um, what is it we're referring to? What is what is experience? And we use that we bandy the term about here, and here it is in the title of everything the analyst life experience. And I thought to myself, I less and less know what in the world experience is. Because as you read through these essays, my goodness, you know, there's um, so many different uh, 
you know, sort of stories being told and thoughts being shared. I do, does that have any thoughts about the use, how we use this term? And uh, I don't know. I do, I do, and I actually have more conscious thoughts about it since the book came out because. In the book title, I'm, I'm referring to life experience, clinical implications of segments, life experience. And yet, in some writing and presenting that I've done since the book came out, uh, around themes in the book, I find myself leaving life experience and going more to experiences in the treatment room, here and now kinds of experiences, mm-hmm. and to what extent they may or may not link back, I guess they always do to some, in some way, mm-hmm. to earlier life experience. So what do we mean? Whose experience is it? Uh, to what extent is it overlapping joint experience? To what extent is it the patient's subjectivity, the analyst's? When do we mean life experience? When do we mean just an affect that's felt or dissociated? How about the experience of not feeling? There's that as well. Right. I, I don't know if that's what you have in mind. I don't, I don't know what I have in mind with it. I just, it's, it's a word that um, sort of, I'm, I'm starting to look at more and more, and I'm wondering about. I'm like, what do we mean when we say experience? So Joan Scott, who I love, who's a historian, she's not um, an analyst, but she she has an essay, and I think I spoke to somebody else about this in, in the uh, New Books and Psychoanalysis. I can't remember who, but anyway, uh, she has a, a, an essay called The Evidence of Experience, in which she really takes this idea of experience as something that we can all know what it is to have an experience, and she be, and she takes that apart like really so like like as a social construct she she attacks the word I would say and and says you know how do you know when you're having an experience and we, we think we know of course when a patient says well that was my experience right there's a sort of return to something that can't be questioned. And, and that's what she's she's just that's what one of her things is that experience is naturalized and can't and can't be can't be called into question, um, which I think is a I think she's right about that. I think there's something about the term experience that um, uh, it, it, it I don't I don't know I don't know what to say next about it, but. Uh, anyway. I- I, I like thinking about it this way. It reminds me of older ways of, of thinking about psychoanalysis and one person's psychology and the analyst as the all-knowing mm-hmm. authority um, who gets to tell the patient what their experience is or isn't mm-hmm. and gets to tell themselves as the analyst that they're not having any experience as an analyst that will interfere with or influence uh, the transference, counter-transference field. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It also depends where we're coming from theoretically, I think, in terms of how we define experience. And then I think of how, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear, does it make a sound? Or, right. Uh, if, if someone is, is, is in the room and dissociated um, or in one's life, there's trauma that, that uh, doesn't become symbolized, that becomes dissociated. Do we call that an experience? Do we call that an absence of an experience? Do we call that something that has an impact but no conscious right. experience? It's more and more to me um, a very uh, loaded term used casually. So I'm just interested in when, when we're using it, as you're using it here, um, you know, what, just, you know, what, what, what thoughts does it, um, does it bring to mind? Um, 
Yeah. So what is the so so how is the reception of the book been? I mean, my sense is uh, that that people are are really liking it. You've been going around and you know sort of doing presentations and so forth. Yeah, yeah we had an online webinar uh, sponsored by IARP, you know, the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, uh, that was way oversubscribed, and my sense is that people are people desperately want to talk about. Now I'm not going to be able to use the word experience without having all of these other thoughts. <laughs> the people desperately want to talk about their personal experiences. They want to talk about uh, their their affective and sub- generally subjective lives, illnesses, marital separations, some of the themes that we touch on in the book, right. other themes uh, that webinar participants brought up. People want to talk about it. People are um, – I think it's probably related to what you said earlier, Tracy, in terms of what is the impact – uh, what's the deprivation? What's the impact of deprivation on the analyst? Uh, I think sitting quietly and listening, uh, and then coming into a space where we can suddenly talk about ourselves and how this affects the work is very liberating for people. So I've I've had that um, the, the sort of sense of pressure, yep. relief to talk about these things. There's also one theme that keeps coming up over and over again, um, which is the notion of deliberate self-disclosure. People mm-hmm. keep wanting to bring that up. And it's not something that I, at least again, very consciously thought about with this book. In fact, I I don't think of self-disclosure as a real go-to, um, frequently used uh, technique or option, let's say. Mm-hmm. Although although certainly uh, I, it, it is part of my work sometimes with some patients. Right. But people want to talk about that. So I would say that's the, the two main areas that I see wanting to talk about oneself and wanting to talk about the idea of self-disclosure. Well, you, you, your essay, like kind of in the, in the book is pretty, um, pretty mind blowing in terms of having to contain, uh, and not disclose and wondering, uh, you know, how, how to manage, um, do you want to say a little bit about, about what you, what you wrote about? Cause I thought, man, that really would make me, you know, um, it would it would stir up so many feelings, and I would be wondering what what in the world to do. Um, that's a little bit, or sure. Uh, you know, I, I write. I, I there are a couple of things going on in, in my in my chapter. One is that I use it as a framework for hearing voices, as as I call it, meaning hearing the voices of earlier teachers and supervisors and and early analysts, uh, telling me one set of rules to follow. And then I hear more current voices, in, including my own, and, and how to balance that tension between being trained many you know, years ago in a one modality and then coming to work and train in a different modality. How do you how do you keep that tension? But this is against the backdrop of the story in which a patient comes in and announces that he's about to go on a date. He's very excited. Uh, this is a patient that I see on the couch. Get to a place where he's even dating, isn't that right? If I recall, yes, exactly, exactly. That in itself was a, a, a part of his process of treatment, and there had been uh, some substance abuse issues that were more under control, but mostly, and in part related to the substances. Mostly, he was terrified of of relating. There was a great deal of internalized homophobia that he was struggling with, and there was fears of intimacy. And you know, this is one of those catchphrases who doesn't have fears of intimacy, but his 
conflicts in that area were such that it was very difficult for him to relate. So he's finally at a place where he can begin to date. And he's been fixed up on a blind date. And as he starts to talk about this guy, and I'm so happy, and I'm quite excited for him, and I'm feeling his excitement, there's some description of the man that he's about to meet that I feel in my body initially as we sometimes feel these things before they register more fully. And I realized that he's describing uh, one of my closest friends at the time, really uh, someone I would say is my best friend. Um, and the chapter becomes about, you use the word contain, and that's right on, how to contain this, if to contain this, why to contain this, what do I do with it? I, I presented that work at a conference, and there were a couple of people in the audience, and even somebody on the panel I was on, who said they would have right away told the patient, this, you're about to date my friend. And I took a very different approach, which was to not say anything for, for a period of time. And it, it, I was about to say it killed me. That sounds quite dramatic, but it definitely was toxic yeah. to hold on to that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, that's so interesting. So some people said they would have disclosed right away, but you know, there's also, I mean, I don't know if those people were trained relationally, but that would perhaps, there, there's so much anxiety, uh, I think, amongst more classically trained people about um, uh, muddying the treatment, uh, about boundaries, about, you know, um, you definitely never treat a husband and a wife. You know, there's like all these, you can't do this, you can't do that, you must maintain. There's some fantasy, I think, that's alive and well. Um, that, that still has its, its roots in neutrality, that, um, you know, we can, we can separate these things out. Let's face it, we've all trained at these institutes where we, you know, our analyst is teaching at the institute, you know, and there's conferences and there's this, so there's this fantasy that, we, that there can be um, something pure, right? And, you, and your piece is like, Wow, you know, like when you're like, oh my God! So now what will happen? Will my best friend and my patient? What if they fall in love and like they're together forever? Does that mean I can't go to you know to, to Passover Seder there? Like what the hell? What the hell is right? It means I can't leave the house, or I might consider changing professions. <laughs> it, it it brought up those kinds of fantasies, yeah. uh, including don't talk to my friend because I don't want to hear who he's dating. Um, while, this, while this was going on. So I, you know, it's interesting. I think the people that said they would feel the need to say right away to their patient, I think they, in one case at least, I know he was coming from a more relational place in, in that he was feeling like, um, let's do away with the hierarchy here. Oh. Why are we keeping, and why, and why are we keeping secrets? Let's put it out all out in the open. My feeling was I was working from a more, for me, at least, I conceptualized it as a more as a classical position, yeah. in which I wanted my patient to have his experience unmuddied, as you say, to whatever extent. I knew eventually something would have to give. Mm -hmm. uh, what complicates it further, as you know from the chapter, is that I don't just see this patient individually for many years, but he's also in a group that I run. Yeah. So then. The, there's this space of the other patients that I want to protect. Um, right, right. So I, as I say in the chapter, I um, pray for the worst and hope it goes poorly, which of course is a lovely feeling to have for someone you care about, for two people, two people you care about actually. Someone you've worked really, really 
hard. It's like like talk about the deprivation. I was like, and now your patient has finally, you know, stepped out into the world. How in the world, you know, does this happen that he gets he, he gets set up with your one of your best friends? Jeez, I, like you can't even enjoy it. <laughs> none of us could enjoy it. Um, <laughs> none of us could enjoy it, and uh, it, it has its resolution which we won't give away right 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 right. no it, it's really it, it's a ter- it's a terrific piece i was it was suspenseful i was like okay. i was wondering what's the end was what's he gonna do what's he gonna yeah. do what's he gonna yeah. do with it? how's it gonna how's it gonna go i i was i i was very glad like he didn't say a word because it was like well you know then it then it really would be about you right and it's like well then the patient has to protect you and like yes Yes, exactly. I think we have some obligation. Oh, well, that's a super ego heavy word. That's okay. We have some obligation. <laughs> right. We have some obligation to protect the patient's right not to know when we are able to. Yeah. When we are able to. On the one hand, on the other hand, we have some right to respect our humanity as well, and that is in the patient's best interests too, I believe. So there's the tension. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely, and I think there's a desire, you know, some, of course we have patients who we really, uh, you know, there's the patient, there's the, there's the patients that you think, oh, if you weren't my patient, I would definitely be your friend, you know, gee, if you weren't your patient, I wish we could this and that, I, wow, it'd be wonderful to go to dinner, or then worse, the patients that work at places that we've always wanted to go to eat. <laughs> what the, how come? Why are you at that new restaurant? I can't go. That's so not fair. On the one hand, I get to hear the inside scoop about the restaurant. On the other hand, I can't go there. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it, and, and, and you know, there is there can be that the desire to like let the patient know, like this is what I'm giving up for you. You know, do you understand? <laughs> right. 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 Like the parent who says to the child, "Look what I've sacrificed for you." <laughs> history is this you know am I like in a raccoon kind of way is this like the complimentary the concordant what is this or is this just me going like you know what or, or maybe I'm just not being paid enough you know <laughs> those are all strong possibilities or some combination yeah yeah, yeah. But, but, or maybe maybe again to go back to your word deprivation which obviously resonates for me as you as you conceptualize it maybe it's the result of that in, in some ways um, what toll does it take to be there for the other. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and what, uh, this is a concern I have, and I think that this book kind of speaks to, uh, perhaps it's, you know, it's a shared concern that we have. Like, how can analysts um, find ways to, um, you know, to not just sustain ourselves and not just survive, right? But there is this sense of, given all the deprivations, um, is our analytic culture um, in this country um, is it is it feeding us enough? You know, is it is it really um, providing us with um, and are we allowing ourselves to create a psychoanalytic culture that is um, is enlivening? And I, you know, as I as I'm like, we have to find ways to to keep ourselves as a psychoanalytic culture. Um, you know, uh, percolating, and yet you know you'll hear people say all the time, like, "Oh, they fell asleep at this conference." You know, they fell asleep at that. 
it was so boring. Like there, there's a deadness. Um, you know, are we deadening ourselves? I don't know. Any thoughts about that along those lines? That's part of my mission with this book and with this kind of, of writing and, and what, do I, what I encourage in uh, when I'm looking for articles for, for a journal I edit and for this book and such. Can we bring more of ourselves in? I think that if we're practicing for enough years, and which then quickly become decades and so on, uh, there is a deadening and a cutting off and suffocating of our spontaneity and our humanity that can very easily happen. You hear it in some of the presentations at conferences, and you hear it in certain case reports. It's as if we're supposed to present this perfectly analyzed, therefore neutered, perhaps, um, uh, professional, where the life is missing, where there is a split between the personal and the professional rather than an integration, which I'm hoping... Uh, we can think about more actively. Right. I think that conferences and have the potential to be enlivening. Yeah. I think activities outside of the office, whether it's writing or presenting or becoming involved in one's institute, if, if you have a home analytic institute, uh, are ways of combating the isolation, the loneliness, the deprivation. But there are there are very high risk factors here. Adrian Harris writes about some of this and thinks about the, the need for the analyst to take better care of, of him or herself. The other thing that may be going on here is perhaps there is a, a certain kind of masochistic uh, character type that's drawn to this kind of work. Certainly we know that Many analysts, and sometimes some of the best analysts, have experienced their own suffering and their own childhood abuses or traumas or deprivations and such, and there's a wish to rescue. Right. And I wonder if if the need to rescue puts us in a more masochistic, less less self-caring place. Here's the paradox, right? As I was reading this book, the question of masochism did did cross my mind because I thought – Okay, there's a relationship between exhibitionism and masochism, as we know, right? So here's people, and they are exi- they are showing. I mean, it's you know a tour de force. I mean, there's one um, analyst who writes uh, what's his name? Sorry, I'm so bad with names with books like this. Um, oh, Eric Mendelson, right? Writing about working through separation uh, toward toward divorce. You know, it's like this is where people are exhibiting. Um, you know, Anna Ornstein's piece comes to mind as well. I mean, her, you know, with surviving Auschwitz. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I you know, and, it, and it's, it's great to read. But as analysts, we're all, you know, it's like there is. I mean, how in the world are we, we going to keep this profession lively, right? It's really and 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 keep analysts. Um, um, away from that masochistic position where they end up, and I don't think that's what's going on in this book. Although I do think that you know, there's always that there is always that relationship. Um, but to keep, but to create a culture that uh, that enlivens and feeds the analyst, um, I'm I'm concerned about it always. I think it's about concern, and if we're not concerned about it, then we're certainly more at risk for uh, the negative consequences of this profession. Yeah, um, you know, as we think about like sort of attacks on psychoanalysis, which are rife, and um, analysts absorbing those, it's not just you know sitting in the consulting room, 
know, I, I was also thinking bad about this book. I was like, it's not just sitting in the consulting room and like the patient doesn't know that you're pregnant, you're eight and a half months, you know, as, as, is the patient, as is the patient's right. But it's also that then we walk out into the culture, um, not a psychoanalytic culture, but I mean the culture at large that's, you know, is the quick fix culture, the take a pill culture, the, um, the culture that says psychoanalysis isn't that, you don't do that, do you? Exactly. Exactly. A, a non-reflective, non-self-reflective culture. Right. Say, uh, how anxious do people become when they ask you what you do for work and you tell them I'm a psychoanalyst? <laughs> <laughs> There's, you know, we all um, have our stock answer to try to put someone at ease there. But I think it's there's not a very welcome space for it in this current climate. I would yeah. agree. No, there, there's not. And I, and I was thinking about you know, why this book feels, it's like such a good read, you know, you're like, oh, this is so interesting, and oh, I've been curious to know, I like, I, when I read Hirsch's piece, I was like, having interviewed him, I was like, oh, this totally makes sense, I'm really, like, you know, happy to hear, like, a senior analyst talk about, you know, these, these experiences, and what he knows about himself, you know, um, but yeah, like, when we, when we leave the office, and we go out into the world, and we say, oh, I'm a psychoanalyst, I mean, you know, many people are fascinated, but, uh, you know, many, but uh, doors um, are shut in our face, our faces as well, um, and I think the need to, um, to figure out how to, how to really take pride in ourselves, I mean, it's like, uh, yes. how to take pride, and to what extent is shame stirred? Now, again, that might be because so much of us come into this profession with our own uh, feelings of shame or vestiges of shame, at least. Yeah. Um, we're, and if we're then in a profession where we feel we have to to hide aspects of ourselves, to what extent does that feed the shame? And then if the culture reacts negatively to what it is that we do, right. th then what does that do to shame and other, other feelings? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's really um, something that I, I'm interested in getting uh, us all to to talk about together, you know, and to try and, to try and work on, um, because I think it, you know, it, it, it's a, like a double whammy, you know, of, uh, uh, of a double whammy of deprivation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, the, these essays are very um, libidinous. That was the thought I had also, that the essays in this book have a lot of libido. You know what I mean? You really see these are people... I mean, the, the Glassman and the Botticelli piece, I, I, I found it so uh, so moving and so full of, full, of, full of libido and their struggles, you know, as, you know, with, with their son who, you know, two, you know, they're two gay men, they're trying to raise their son, the kid's on the baseball field, he's a real athlete, one of the, one of the analyst dads, Noah Glassman, is like, I was like a sissy boy. But there's but there's a sense of libido um, throughout, which I think is um, uh, what what is so so wonderful about the contribution um, uh, that that the book makes. I'm so glad libido and fathers come into the picture more than they sometimes do. Don't don't you very, think? Very Whether true. It's Steve and Noah or or mm -hmm. Sally Bjorkland talking about. Her her father through her adoption, and Hillary Grill talking about her father's illness. Fathers make some appearance here. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Well, well, I think um, we are at our 50-minute mark. We've gone a little, a little bit over, 40 seconds. <laughs> That's always I'm like, I'm like a gratifying interview. Um, we could keep going, but I actually have to go. So, But I'd like to thank you um, very much uh, for joining us, for um, having... 
put this book together, um, and uh, when you put your next book together, um, you should uh, let us know um, at New Books and Psychoanalysis. So to all the listeners out there, um, this is Tracy Morgan and Steve Kuchuk, and we're going to sign off um, until next time. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Steve. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. 18- plus.